Hi, and welcome to the Writers Guild of Alberta online reading for Charlotte Cameron and her new book, Love and Courage in Troubled Times. I'm Nancy Bell, I'm your host for this evening. So I'd like to welcome Charlotte to our reading. I'm just going to read a little bit, uh, introduce Charlotte to you, and then I will let her take it away. Charlotte Cameron loves to write about historical characters and real events in her fiction. With catharsis, she found inspiration for a timeless story set in the modern day, love and courage in troubled times. Alex de Coteau, Canada's first Indigenous policeman and a famous Olympic runner, was the inspiration for her play, Running, the Alex de Coteau story, with author Malcolm Laurie's short visit to Gabriola inspired another play, October Fairies to Gabriola. Charlotte lives with her husband on British Columbia's Gabriola Island, known as the Isle of the Arts. Along with volunteer work, she enjoys working, walking on the island's trails, reading and swimming in the Salish Sea. She serves as president of the board of the Poetry Gabriola Society. So that is Charlotte, and I will let you take it away. And thank you to the Writers Guild for, for, host, for having this. Well, thank you, Nancy. And I would also like to thank the Writers Guild of Alberta for giving me so much encouragement and help for the last 20 years when I've been a member. <laughs> So I guess I am now supposed to jump in and start off by giving you a little bit of an introduction to my book, Love and Courage in Troubled Times. And I thought I would start by reading you a blurb from the back of the book. And uh, it'll pretty well, it pretty well, in my opinion, says everything. Hmm. Think of a terrible event that happened hundreds of years ago. Then imagine that you are forced to spend an extended time in a village near where it happened. Add to this that you suddenly start seeing flashes of that tragedy, both in your dreams and when awake. That's what happens to 15-year-old Leslie Graham from Vancouver. Leslie's flashes lead her on a series of adventures and to the realization that the past, even the long ago past, has something to teach us. And so um, the book does go back and forth between different centuries and decades. And um, just to help people out a bit, in the prologue, I have the date, 1210. And then for the um, events that happened in the present, um, the date is 2019. Okay, so I'll, I'll just jump in and, and start reading. This is Vancouver in 2019, and Leslie Graham is upset about something. Tell us everything, Sam orders, as Megan, Sam Nang, and I huddle together 
at a table in the noisy, crowded cafeteria. My parents broke the news a few days ago, I say. It explains why my mom has been acting so weird lately. For a while, I was afraid she was having an affair. Are you moving away? Megan looks crestfallen. No, at least if we were moving to another city, I could make new friends and turn over a new leaf. But instead, the whole family is leaving for almost a year. I'll miss everything, especially spending all summer here with you and Sam Nang, like we always do. Where are you going? Sam asks. Remember, I told you my dad has a sabbatical to write a history book. I assumed he was going to do it right here in Vancouver. He thought so too, but then the plan changed. There's a big conference he needs to attend in France. His publisher has made arrangements for him to meet some French academics who have been doing similar research. They have resources he didn't know about. They can help him. So now it's all set up for our whole family to go to France so he can write the book there. My mom plans to keep on writing articles for her magazine, stuff about families traveling together, like the two-week trip we took to Norway, blah, blah, blah. Now my mom will have a new topic, traveling with children in the south of France. Well, she can write about the twins, but not about me. I have no intention of going. What's your father's book about again? Megan asks. It's about a crusade and inquisition in the south of France that happened hundreds of years ago. People called Cathars were stuffed in churches and burned alive for their beliefs. I don't know why he is even interested in such horrible events. What happened way back then was awful but it has nothing to do with today. It's totally irrelevant. I'm so envious, Sam Ning says with a sigh as she closes her lunch bag. I love France. You'll get to see Notre Dame Cathedral being repaired, adds Megan. I groan. We won't be near the interesting stuff. Even my parents admit we'll be staying in the middle of nowhere in a tiny French village full of old people. There isn't even a school there for kids my age. I'll have to do all my courses online. I don't want to go. 
I'm sure it will be interesting, Megan says. I was planning on having an interesting time in grade 10 with you guys, meeting new people, maybe finding someone tall enough for a boyfriend. Lucky us, Sam Nang grins as she flips her long black hair off her shoulders. We won't have you around for competition. As if my friends are stunning beauties. I'll bet dad and grandma would let you stay with us, Sam Nang says. They always say they wished I had siblings. Now that we finally converted my mother's studio into a bedroom, we have room for you. You'd like it. I'll ask them tonight. Well, I'll skip ahead, but that didn't work out. And so Leslie is getting ready to go with her family to France. Time didn't drag. Our days were a whirl of social activities. People keep, in, people keep inviting us over for dinner, and my parents also entertain at home. Dad pours the famous Nidwal wine for people I barely know, explaining that grapevines were introduced to the Minerve area by the Romans. Everyone wants to know how we found a place to live in France. And my father, who just loves coincidences, enjoys telling the story about hosting a visiting professor from Amsterdam. That's how he learned about the French network of government-approved country houses called Gilles Death's first choice was the former Cathard village of Nure, but there were no places available, so he managed to rent a gîte in a nearby village called Amy. There are tons of questions. Many guests wonder why he is so interested in the Cathars. Well, it was a peaceful and tolerant time for a brief, brief, brief period in 13th century Languedoc. I sigh with boredom when dad goes into lecture mode and try to tune him out. They produced plenty of food, built impressive buildings, and became confident and strong in their religious beliefs and customs. Cathar women were allowed to own land, and land was the source of power. Mom chimes in, and I realize she is just as fascinated by the Cathars as dad. I've always been interested in the Cathar troubadours because of their stories and songs of Courtney Love, she says. The troubadours originated in Languedoc and then spread to other regions. But Languedoc was the only place with women troubadours. One of the most famous was Clara Danduza whose passionate love poems are favorites of mine. Everyone starts talking at once, but weren't there plagues back then? Interjects another guest. Dad jumps back in. 
There were many plagues before and after the Cathars were persecuted. The Black Plague was one of the worst, but it didn't hit Europe until 1347, a century after the time period I'm writing about. Even in modern times, there have been terrible epidemics. The Spanish flu happened only 100 years ago. My great-grandfather died of the Spanish influenza, a neighbor remarks. After World War I, it killed huge numbers. And the second wave was even worse. Almost 50 million people died. Strange, there still isn't a vaccine for it. So maybe we shouldn't be too complacent. Dad interrupts directing the discussion back to his hobby horse. So the Cathars are interesting because in the 13th century, they flourished for a brief time. They didn't suffer from plagues, food shortages, or famines. They were free to practice their belief in reincarnation. Reincarnation, I blurt without thinking, we studied that in school. We talked about what we would like to be in the second life. What did you want to return as? Someone asks. I shrug and decide to let dad do the talking. The Catholics were persecuted because they criticized the Pope and the Catholic Church. The church was wealthy and its priests did not take vows of poverty. The Cathars didn't believe in elaborate church buildings and stopped paying tithes. The Pope launched crusades against the Cathars, massacring them at several sites, including the lesser known village of Minerva, where more than 140 Cathars were burned at the stake in July 1210. Some accounts say they were forced into a church that was set on fire, but it's more likely that they were marched out of the town to Paris on a dry riverbed. Dad pauses to sip his wine. To get away from his gruesome lecture, I take the empty wine bottles to the kitchen. The Cathars have become a symbol of regional independence and self-sufficiency. Every year, more and more tourists flock to Cathar villages. Some even believed the Cathars had treasure or maybe a holy grail. They believed there might be a secret map out there somewhere. Cults are springing up in the Pyrenees. It's insane. Some people actually believe they are reincarnated Cathars. That's ridiculous, I think to myself. I am leaving. After I say goodbye, Dad is still talking as I put on my jacket. The Cathars barter among themselves. If a villager had lights, he could pay a woman to de-louse him by making repairs to her house. 
The thumb was called the chifu or louse killer. Women could trade sexual favors for labor. The Cathars didn't object to contraception or the exchange of sex for money. So now the conversation is finally getting interest just when I decide to leave. Thank you. I'll let that be it for now. Well, thank you, Charlotte. That was most interesting. So, and for anyone who is out there, out there listening to us, you can leave any questions that you might have for Charlotte in the YouTube chat, and we will forward those on to Charlotte and get her to answer them for you. So please feel free, um, any, anything you wanna ask about her writing uh, processes or why uh, she chose the Cathars or what it is about that particular region of France that, um, sort of interested her and made her want to set the book there. Um, just a quick question. I've got a couple of questions just to go on with here. Um, why did you decide to set it in contemporary times rather than as a straight historical? Did you um, think maybe the contemporary setting would be more appealing and easier to relate to a young adult audience rather than just to, uh, rather than the typical historical aspect of it? Well, that, that is a very good question. I, I almost don't know why. When I started writing it uh, years ago, I had heard the story about the Cathars when my husband Tom and our child and I were in a little village. And people just told us the story as if it had happened yesterday, just yesterday. And... Um, for some reason, I, I always had the two stories. I made myself hearing the story, how I felt, and then getting so interested in it that really I, I couldn't stop talking about it once I got thinking about it. So that's a good sign for me. If I start talking about a story, that means, but why, I, I think you're right. There were very various reasons for doing this. And if I was doing it again, I probably would still keep, keep going back and forth. Although in some ways it maybe would have been easier just to, oh, oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Did you ever um, consider using time travel rather than the use of dreams or visions? You know, there's such a big uh, following for Diana Gabaldon right now with her Outlander series. Although, you know, the the yeah. true true Outlander fans have been out have been fans since the 1990s. But since the the advent of the the TV shows, there's been like a huge new mass of followers, and and so time travel's become kind of the the it thing, you know. And um, it can be a little yes. bit overdone, but I. Did you consider um, using time travel as opposed to visions as a, a vehicle to tell the story? Yes, I did. In the, in the first uh, drafts, I, I, did, I was thinking about time travel. And I love stories about time travel, like the time traveler's life, mm -hmm. the things you've mentioned already. I, I love them. 
But what I was told, um, the book went out to quite a few different publishers and it was, they were very nice and very helpful. But pretty well, they all pointed out to me that I did not really get time, time travel nailed down very well. Mm. Um, to me, it's um, in, in, actually in this book, uh, Leslie has two little twin brothers. Right. They know, they know she goes someplace, and they've read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They, they know about time travel, and they know she. They think she does time travel, but um, she doesn't. And so I, that was something that was kind of important that I, I not try to do it because I don't. I don't think I'm not good at it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, so. She does, um, it, at the beginning of the novel, Leslie is a soccer player and she does have a, get a concussion. Okay. And the, that is a way that I can explain why she has bad dreams mm -hmm. and visions. And that was interesting talking to a few people who have had concussions. Uh -huh. So, I hope that answers. The yeah, question. no, um, it just uh, something when I, I was sort of reading about your your book and and the things that were in it. It was just a question that came up. Um, what was your uh -huh. time? I'd love to go ahead. I, no, go ahead. I I would love to write about time traveling, but I'll leave it to you. <laughs> you yeah, it's, it's its own little there's all those quirks and the anomalies you've got to watch for and can get a little tricky. So what was your timeline timeline like um, to do your research and then to write the book and then complete all, you know, writing it is kind of the simple part sort of, and then you've got your, you know, your, your own edits and then your beta readers and then, you know, trying to sell it to a publisher. And then there's always edits with your publisher. What was your timeline like, um, to, to kind well, of in a nutshell. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Okay, in a nutshell, I heard the story in 1981 in a village in France. Mm -hmm. And I didn't take very good notes because I actually wasn't thinking of myself as a writer at the time. I was just traveling, enjoying things. And then this is this might be too long a story. Then <laughs> We returned <laughs> to Edmonton, and I was teaching in a school that went to hear the late Monica Hughes give a talk. And uh, she was in the, a library near the school. We walked over. The whole school fell in love with her and the writing. And even the principal started writing in the school. Wow. And so I, uh, and I did too. I, I wanted to be a writer because of hearing Monica Hughes. So from the school, no less, I phoned her. I just looked her name up in the phone book and phoned mm -hmm. her. She was so nice. She invited me to a meeting of Kamsky. And I went and the, all the writers in that group were so encouraging and inspiring and so that went on 
for quite a while. And then I wrote different versions and send it to different publishers. And I actually had one working with me for about a year and so on. And in the end, it didn't work out. But I never, I never really worried about it. Mm -hmm. I just, I just enjoyed the writing. And then I, then after I moved to Gabriola Island, I met my friend Maury Mosto, who's a publisher and an editor. And um, I didn't tell her about the Cathars story, but she did want to write about one, a book about one of my plays. So anyway, so I, I ended up writing plays for a while. Mm-hmm. And then after that, so in about 2016, I started telling Maury Mosto this story on the Cathars. And um, yeah, it was kind of a challenge for both of us, rewriting all the time. But anyway, after, I'm very, very grateful to her for all the help she gave me. Mm-hmm. And it, this time, it got published. And I love, I just love everything she does. Like the cover, she does the cover herself. Mm-hmm. She was going to get somebody else to do it. She picks my favorite colors for the spine. Nice. <laughs> she's just an amazing and she's bilingual, so she helped a lot when we had to right away for permission to use some of the images. Yes. Which we got from a museum in Minerva. So yeah. Yep. There was 20 years in you know, to to me 20, 20 years to write this book. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 interesting when you um, talk about asking for permission to use um, images and different things because a lot of uh, in this self-publishing world today, a lot of people don't realize that you, if you're using someone else's basically intellectual property, that you do need to ask their permission to use them, whether it's an image or it's a song lyric or even a short excerpt. Uh, from someone's book, like you, it, you really do need to ask for those permissions, and and I think. In a lot of cases, if you don't, and the person or organization in question finds out about it, you can find yourself in a lot of trouble. So it's any uh, sort of authors and writers out there who who are thinking of self-publishing or are just starting getting out in the field, that's something you really need to think about. Um, so it's good that you brought that up. You also write plays. Do you find there's a difference in how you approach creating a play as opposed to um when you're starting to craft a novel? Yes, um, there, there is quite a difference. Although I always think that all the genres help each other. Mm-hmm. So for example, a play helps when a person is writing a novel with a lot of conversation in it. There are some things that are really hard about writing, writing plays. Uh-huh. Um, for, um, the good thing is if you have a story you really want to tell, a play will get it out to a hundred people a night or something like that. Mm, true. So, um, so before I, I wrote, um, the two plays that were published, I wrote a, a play called No Gun for Annie. And it is about... Edmonton's first policewoman. 
Annie Jackson. Mm -hmm. And um, when I heard her story, like I just went around telling everybody about her and talking about her. And finally, um, one of my friends said, why don't you just write a play about her? Then you can tell a hundred people a night. <laughs> so that's what I did. But it was very hard to write my first play. So I thought it would be uh, a one-woman show. I am uh -huh. a very good actor to be Annie Jackson. And in the end, we put in six more people. Oh, it, just, it just needed it. And, and it was actually there. It, the writing was short and quick. And it was for the Edmonton Fringe. I got right. drawn in the lottery. And um, we just threw everything we had into that play and got it up. And right to the, at the Edmonton Friendship, you will know this, that the play can be withdrawn with a phone call. They don't, they don't mind if you feel you cannot get your play ready in time. Oh. They have a whole list of people waiting to jump in. And oh. so I was tempted, but all along the way, people said they'd help me and they came to and helped me. And that was one of my best experiences putting on that program. Do you find it harder or do you, which, which do you enjoy more? Is there, do you have like a favorite? Do you enjoy playwriting more than actually crafting a novel or do you have a, a favorite? Um, I, I don't know if I have, if I have a, a favorite or not. Um, I, I like, I like doing both actually. I like writing plays and novels, but if I write a novel again, it's, it'll be a shorter one. Ah, and you write poetry <laughs> as well. Um, a teensy bit. In, in this book, there is a long poem. It's mm -hmm. a ballad. And uh, the poet laureate of Nanaimo worked with me on it. And it kind of just tells the whole story of what happened to the cowards. Oh. So that, that was using, you know, a ballad mm -hmm. um, as a model. But this same poet, um, writes books about haiku. Okay. And uh, when I was teaching, I liked teaching the haiku and other things. And I try to write little haikus if I'm on a walk or something like that. But mm -hmm. I'm not a poet. I, I, I will never be there. I, mm -hmm. I, <laughs> so I'll stick with stories and plays. But if a poem gets thrown in once in a while, that's good. It happens. So I found a quote. Um, it says, what happened in the age of, of the troubadours becomes relevant to our own troubled times. So can you speak to this quote about your novel a little bit? Um, what do you see as the parallels between the Cathars and modern day events? Well, it, 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 it's, it's just the fact that so many terrible things are happening in, in the world at the moment. 
And um, so even though uh, the days of the troubadours were, that was the 13th century or whenever, mm -hmm. um, we, still, we still need to know the history of what's happened. And um, it was actually quite difficult not to talk too much about that when I was writing the book because I kept adding, you know, groups of people who were, are being mistreated at the moment. And, mm -hmm. and finally, it just, it, it just had, you know, I had to edit out a lot of that. But every, the, the news, all the news in Canada and news from other countries is terrible. So we, we just can't think that uh, it, terrible things are not happening anymore because we all know they are. Mm, they certainly are. Um, so you, you did travel to France twice. Yes. The, the first time you weren't really um, researching the book, it, it, that was kind of when the germ of the idea happened. So when you went yeah. back the second time, were you consciously looking to kind of gather material grist for the mill, so to speak, for, yes. for the book? And, yes. and how long were you there and how did, how did that all play out? Well, we, we were actually only there for just over a week when we went back, but I really concentrated on checking facts and trying to figure things out. And um, there's nothing like being in the place because mm -hmm. it becomes obvious. Like if I, I was working with a couple of little problems about where people were and what not. Mm -hmm. And um, to be there, it just became very clear what the answer would, would be. So um, that, the rest of the time on that trip, we were in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. And we did a house exchange with a fellow who had an apartment there. And um, that was the part of the story that, was a, a, an extra bit of fun for me because I, I wanted to help Barcelona. Finally, I figured out how to do it. <laughs> but it's, I, actually, I should also say, is my husband, Tom, wants us to go back to France, to Minerva again, because there still are things. It's a beautiful, beautiful place to visit, and there's still a, I still have questions about mm. that. Do you find yeah. when you go when you go to someplace like that, um, and you're going with a purpose, obviously, because you're doing research, and and do you find that um, mm. it just standing in in that place and and with your feet on that ground that that things just kind of come or present themselves that maybe you hadn't thought about? I know it's happened to me uh, when I went to Cornwall. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would say definitely. It's um, it's wonderful, and even though more recently I I check a lot of facts online, it's still not like being forgetting the ideas. No. Yeah, you're right. You're right. 
Yeah. Was there one thing in particular that that stands out when you were actually there on the ground that that sort of ended up maybe coming into the novel or or serving as a catalyst in your novel? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, um, I do. I do have a girl in the novel who mm-hmm. escaped from the village. And she watched people being burnt from distance. And so yes, that's in the prologue, yes. And yes. And I I I always wondered how she got away. Because when you're there, it, it doesn't look like it would be easy for a girl to run away with crusaders on horseback and mm-hmm. everything like that. So this this is a little it sounds a little crazy, but um, Tom and I were walking around Minerva. Now, there are all kinds of things there. There are models of catapults and everything. And um, at a certain point, he, he yelled back at me, run, because you have to jump. So I ran, and I had to jump over this kind of a ditch. Mm-hmm. And I fell down on my knees, and I looked to the right. And I saw a little path climbing through the trees. And there are lots of caves around there. And so actually, I crawled in. I crawled all the way in on my hands and knees, Mm -hmm. right to the end, and looked down, and there was a valley below. So that's how she escaped. (laughs) She fell on. It's really cool how some how things just happen, you know, that they're like little gifts that that the universe gives us. You're right. Yeah, it's wonderful. It is. So um, you use the the COVID pandemic toward the end of your story to kind of um, sort of shift them back to Vancouver and that. um, Did you did you feel it was important? important to include the pandemic in the story or or did it just present itself as kind of a useful tool in order to to kind of shuffle them back to Vancouver and tie up some loose ends and maybe give us a little bit of a um, oh there might be a next book when she meets uh, her friend at the airport in in London well you know I'm I'm glad you asked um from the very beginning um in early versions, there was talk of um, the Black Plague or different things like that happening. So that was always there. I didn't put it in at the end. And my first ending of this book was a very happy ending. At the end of the story, it sounds unbelievably simple, Leslie and her friends go on a trip themselves to Amsterdam. Okay. Um, her parents, they, her parent, their parents say she deserves, she's done very well, she coped very well, she grew up, she deserves a trip. So the girls are planning a trip to Amsterdam. They're going to go to Pam Frank's house. They make all the plans and then everything gets cancelled. And what happened, I had this, I had a happy ending, and then all around me, 
people, teenagers, were saying they couldn't go on this trip they had planned. They couldn't get into the program, nursing or whatever. There, all, the, all kinds of people had everything canceled. And so it actually is a fact that I couldn't finish the novel. I just thought, there's no way I can have a happy ending now with all the people, young people, people, everywhere suffering. And so for a few weeks, I didn't think I would end it. And then finally, and you, you probably noticed the ending's very fast mm-hmm. compared to the beginning. I just like, I just couldn't take it. I just like <laughs> threw it. It gave it uh, a different ending. And um, I, I, I quite like the ending now. Mm-hmm. Good, I like the ending. Well, that's good. And, and, and COVID was, was, is, you know, obviously something that all the young people in this day and age is going to remember much like, you know, the people who lived through the Spanish flu remember it for forever. And, and, you know, even their kids still remember it. So it's, it's certainly very um, contemporary and, and something to put in the novel. Is there one particular thing about the Cathars that made you want to tell their story? Was like, was there like a, you know, one of those aha epiphany moments where where you when I need to I need to tell this story and I need to tell it from this young girl's point of view. Well, the people who told me the story were so dramatic. Um, one woman said she could never go to Minerva because she could hear the stones crying when she went there, no, and she- everything. So, yeah, it was such a dramatic story. And so you just took it and ran with it. Yeah, that's right. I didn't so, think it also moved. But we have about three minutes left. Is there anything? Okay. Um, sort of closing statements about your book. Tell us where you can, where we can learn more about you. Tell us where we can get your book. Um, who your publisher is, uh, if she has a website that we can go to and and find out more about her and and, uh, obviously probably buy your book through her. It's Fictive Publishing, is that correct? It's called um, fictivepress.com. And um, at at the end of my emails in my signature, there is um, information on how to get Yes, but apparently it's in chapters, I heard, and um, at all the favorite places people have. Um, Smashwords, mm-hmm. Smashwords is very good. Yes. I would say that's an excellent one to go to. Um, yeah. Are you on, on Goodreads and Amazon? and? Um, it got uh, five stars on Goodreads. And, and you have a blog. What's, what's the name of your blog if someone wanted to go um, and peruse it, your blog? It's, 
It's uh, Charlotte's being well. Okay. Um, and you and, um, do you have a Facebook page at all where people want to, uh, you know, local people want to find out about your library launch? Can can they go there or will you post mm -hmm. about it in your blog? Yes, I'll do both. I, I do have, I am on Facebook also. I haven't been very active for the last <laughs> couple of weeks, but, <laughs> but I am going to get back on it. Yes, Facebook is a great way to let people know about things. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for visiting with us and sharing your story with us and, and all your thoughts and insights. Um, we really appreciate it and thank the Writers Guild of Alberta, obviously, for, uh, for doing all the technical stuff behind this. And um, for those of you who don't know, I'm not doing the techie stuff. Um, Sadie McGilvery is a summer student at uh, Writers Guild of Alberta, and she is taking care of all the background stuff for us so we don't have to worry about it. So thank you, Sadie. Thank you, Writers Guild. And thank you so much, Charlotte. Uh, again, Charlotte Cameron and her book is Love and Courage in Troubled Times. And it's available at all your favorite uh, online booksellers and through fictive, uh, fictivepress.com. Fictivepress.com. Thank, thank you, you so much, Nancy. Thank you. And Sadie, too. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Charlotte. Very nice to meet you.